1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The most secure children in the world are the ones who know that they are loved and cared for and only desire to please and obey their parents. The problem for us as followers of Christ is that we don't believe the truth that we claim we do about God and who we are if we are his children. This morning we're going to be looking at three things here in this text. Number one, that we are loved by the Father, the first part of verse one. Number two, that we are forgotten by the world, verse one, the second part. And number three, that we are called to conformity, verses two through three, and that conformity is to conform to Christ. Number one, loved by the Father, the first part of verse one. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Behold. Behold is more than just a glance. It's a stare. It is plural. Whenever behold is plural, we are being called to look upon something that is visible. That's clearly evident. What manner, what degree. This is a love that is at another level than you and I have ever experienced in our lives before. And one of the things that's unfortunate is when you talk about the degree with which God loved us, we try to describe it in human terms, what is ultimately divine. Quality of this love is a divine love. It is apart from us as human beings. This goes further than just information that we understand about the Father. This is an a personal thing that God has done for us. There are things in the word of God you need to personalize when you read the text. This is one of them. And unfortunately, what ends up happening with many children of God is they don't personalize the text that clearly reveal what God thinks of them. Whether it be what he thinks of their sin or what he thinks of their position before him because of Christ. We will never fully understand this concept unless we understand the contrast with the world with which we were a part of. And we'll get to that soon. In fact, in Romans 5, the person outside of God is God's enemy. You weren't neutral before you came to God, contrary to what you and I may assume. See, some of us, we grew up in the church and we thought, well, it wasn't that bad. I didn't really go out in the world and really rebel like some of the people I know but you were a rebel. You, in the pew, could still be a rebel to God. In our unregenerate condition, God was an enemy we would prefer to kill rather than be a friend of. In our unregenerate condition, we would have killed God given the opportunity. We were the ones opposing God as we read in Psalm chapter 2. You see, when we read it as believers today, we tend to think, well, the rest of the world, look at that. They're in opposition to God. That was you. 
You were opposed to God like that. During Christ's earthly ministry, they desired to and did kill him, did they not? And it wasn't just the religious leaders that wanted Jesus dead. The crowd went along with them. And by the way, just because you aren't the one leading the charge doesn't mean you're not guilty. In Revelation 20, after the millennium, those who have lived under Christ's reign desire to destroy him yet again. That's how wicked we are. In eternity, not just here on this earth, in eternity there is a gnashing of teeth, intense anger and emotion against God knowing what they know of him. There's not only going to be a regret of not having known Christ, there is going to be an anger towards the wrath of God that's abiding on them. You see, all of us paint this picture of if people don't turn to Christ, they're regretting it when they're in hell. That's not true. There will be those that are in anger and still opposition to him even in eternity. He's bestowed this love on us. He's lavished this love on us as his children. What is meant here is that God is doing all the giving. You're not. You had nothing to give him but your sin. What an exchange. Here, God, take my sin. That's nothing good to offer. God is doing all the giving for an undeserved gift of eternal life. God is doing all of this without so much as a demand that we somehow earn it. God didn't give you a set of rules and said, if you follow these, then maybe you can become a child of mine. If you're a good boy or girl, you can then come to heaven. That's not what happened. God said, I paid it all through the Son. I've paid it all. You simply need to believe. You simply need to come in faith and turn to my son. Charles Spurgeon says, there, he says, you poor people that love me, you sick people, you unknown, obscure people without any talent, I have published it before heaven and earth and made the angels know it, that you are my children and I am not ashamed of you. I glory in the fact that I have taken you for my sons and daughters. Any believer that boasts that they had something to offer God, and that's why God has them as their child, doesn't understand grace. You were just as undeserving as anyone else. Nobody was worth more. Yet God called you his own if you've come in faith and repentance. The doctrine of adoption here is Essentially what's expounded on. It's the legal act of God by which he brings a person into his family with all the rights and privileges of an adult son. The judicial act of God by which he confers on us the status of an adult son. Now here's some observations here that we see in this text. We're put into a family to which we did not naturally belong. Did you know that? You weren't born into this world as a child of God. We are born children of darkness. 
This refers to the two realms. This frees us from our past. In Roman law, when an individual was adopted, his former debts and obligations were erased and paid by the one that adopted them. In fact, his former family considered him dead to them. You know that? We are no longer bound by our sinful debts, believers. You don't owe sin anything. You don't need to go pay that back to sin. Which is one of the reasons why Paul argues so strongly against the fact that many abuse the grace of God by wanting to live in sin. We are given immediate rights in the present, not just in eternity. You have that right as a son or daughter today if you've already trusted in Christ. There are things awaiting you in eternity, but there are things that are already locked in right now that you can be guaranteed of. Specifically here, the right to come to God as the Father. Do you know that Jesus gives you that access that no one else can? No pastor can give you that access. No bishop, no pope can give you that access. Jesus gives you that access. John 17, 23, the same love that God the Father has for Christ is given to us. Did you know that? There is still more awaiting us, though, as an inheritance. Though an adopted son had all the legal rights, he did not fully enter them until he had come of age. When we come to full maturity, which, by the way, full maturity is being conformed to the image of Christ, we inherit those things. The Father wanted us as His children, and He gave them to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that we are His children? It's very simple. I think some people overcomplicate it. We know that we are His children because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 10, verses 22 through 29, we see something specific that Jesus mentions that should be precious to us as believers. Starting in verse 22, he says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, or the Messiah, the Anointed One, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And here's a punch in the gut for them. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What an incredible truth about the adoption that we have. That we are his sheep, that we are his people, that he completely secures us. It's something that can never be forfeited, believer. Your adoption can't be forfeited. The rewards can be forfeited. Your adoption can never be forfeited. 
It was God that called us his own. We are securely in the Father's hand and in the Son's. No one can take that away from us. One other truth that John points out in the last half of verse 1, back in 1 John chapter 2, is that this means that the world will no longer treat us as their own. Did you know that? He doesn't start by saying, you've been given this amazing adoption by God, and that's it. Enjoy life. He's saying, realize the world's going to oppose you. Christians that only believe the positive things of what God's given them without the drawbacks of the tensions in their life from following him are not getting the full story. Number two, forgotten by the world. The second part of verse one. Therefore, based on the fact that you've been adopted by the Father, the world does not know us because it did not know him. A follower of Jesus Christ will not be recognized by the world as one of their own. And if they are, there's a mistake and a problem there. Because of the separation of light and darkness. Which is one of the reasons John brings this up as he expounds on that further in the text. In John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3 verses 18 through 20, here's what Jesus says. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You want to know whether or not the world can get along with God? Watch how they live in opposition to him. But God says this, we don't care. What's even worse is when they speak on God's behalf and blaspheme what he actually said. Oh, God is totally fine with it. Remember, God is love, and they misinterpret that entirely. So many Christians don't live any difference from the world because they openly give in to everything others do as well. And by the way, the world here in John, 1 John chapter 3 and also John 3, the world in this context in 1 John 3 is the world of unbelievers, not everyone on the planet. So even the word itself is still qualified and there's a separation there. God does not recognize those that are not his own as his children. Neither does the world recognize believers as their own because they are diametrically opposed. Remember we, we discussed this earlier? He who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's essentially what he's still building on. So many Christians find themselves as poor representatives of the kingdom of God because they decide to participate with all the other things that others do. So many think Jesus dying for sin means I get to sin as much as I want in outright living just like the world. We don't understand what grace is if that's how we live. We don't understand the cost of the sacrifice of the Son. We're outright living a lie to the world if that's what we think is okay to do. 
The attempt by many Christians to sell out to the world to be recognized by them is a contradiction to what Jesus himself said. In John chapter 15, after the text on the, on the vine, he says, if the world hates you, and that means that there's a disdain possibly, a distrust, an igno ignoring of who you are as a person because you're not one of us, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, listen to this, this is Jesus speaking, the world would love its own. Believer, if the world is loving everything that you do in your life, is it any different? Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Now this is an area that a lot of Christians don't like, this text right here. This next part. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. What Jesus is essentially getting at is, because you are mine, because the Father has chosen you as his own, there is going to be a distinction between you and others. And don't be surprised by the controversy that's always there. One of the greatest desires in the prayer of Christ for his own is that they would be set apart, not simply taken out of the world. You ever wonder why when God saves you, he doesn't just take you home? Because he's not finished. He's still working on you. There's this song that children sing, right? Those of us that are grown up in the church. He's still working on me, right? To make me what I ought to be. And I love the line that, you know, it took him just a week to make the moon and stars, right? It takes longer with us. It takes longer with us. Now, the thief had an instant experience, right? He repented on the cross. Today you're in paradise, but that's not typical. Listen to what John, uh, uh, John 17, 15 through 17, Christ's prayer for his own. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If you want to be different than the world, then the word of God has to be that kind of a priority to you. And don't go looking for articles on how do I be different as a Christian. Be in the word as a priority first. There's a lot of wacky ideas of what it means to be a Christian out on the internet. You dress a certain way, a certain hairstyle, that's what some Christians used to teach. You're dressing a suit and tie. I mean, believe me, I, I fell for that garbage, right? No jeans in church. <laughs> You're not following God. That's legalism for you. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff is simply a standard of men that is imposed on the word of God rather than the word of God imposing the standards on us. As Vance Havner once said, we are the salt of the earth, mind you, not the sugar. Our ministry is to truly cleanse and not just to change the taste. I love that. Your goal isn't just to change the taste a little bit. Your goal is to be salt. Which means it's going to be very different sometimes. And you're going to leave a different taste to people sometimes. 
You're there to cleanse. This is essentially what John is getting at as we continue in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. It's not that we stop here and realize that we are not, we're not going to be accepted by the world. We are to do something about that. We are to purify ourselves as he is pure. Number three, called to conformity. Verses 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. He's building on what he had just said. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What's revealed here is not the second coming, but rather the rapture, when we are to be like him. We are called with him. What it does not mean when he says this, it does not mean that we will be exactly like him in every way. Satan himself offered this in the Garden of Eden. You will be like God, right? Or gods, knowing good and evil. It's tempting. It's a tempting thing to be offered. In fact, it's still offered today. The New Age movement offers this. You are one as God. In fact, you are to be worshipped. God wants you to be one with yourself. That's where you're getting this from. That's not what's being said here. In fact, it's also been brought into the church through the faith movement. We are Christ, according to Kenneth Hagin. Or God made Adam so he could reproduce himself. That garbage is from Kenneth Copeland. Or even better, I am a little Messiah walking on earth. That's Benny Hinn for you. No, you're not. Or Mormons who teach that we'll all be gods. False. All of them. What it actually means is we will be similar to him, specifically in the resurrection body. We are going to be transformed. Christianity is unique when it comes to the resurrection of the body. Did you know that? Plato taught that the soul was imprisoned in the body, so death was good. Gnostics believe that the body was evil. The spirit is only good. Materialists believe that death is a cessation of being, meaning once it's over, it's over. There's no hope for you after all this. Just live it up. Don't think of eternity. It doesn't exist, according to them. Buddhists believe in reincarnation. You're going to come back in a different form. Believers, we do not receive our bodies until the future day of resurrection. Those new bodies. Now, here are the different ways that we'll be similar to Christ in our resurrection bodies. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm going to be honest with you. This is an area that so many believers miss so many important truths on. I want to be as practical as I can on this. If we received our resurrection bodies at death, then the resurrection had already come. If you already received your resurrection body as soon as you die, then Paul was lying to us in 1 Thessalonians when he said the dead in Christ will rise first. Essentially, you're opposing what Scripture clearly teaches. 
which is why this is a future event. Continuity states that we receive not new bodies, but transformed bodies. And the way to prove this is showing that our bodies remain in the earth. That's what scripture clearly teaches. If you were to dig up someone's grave, their bones are still there. Their decaying body or whatever's left of it is still there. It didn't vanish. There will be an inner glory to our resurrection body. And I want you to consider the transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured before his closest disciples. The glory revealed on the mount was the glory that came from within, not the glory that shone from without. In our confirmed holiness one day, there will be an inner beauty, glory, and holiness similar to the Lord Jesus. Because we are going to be like him. Our bodies will still be material, believer. Jesus' body, by the way, was material, in case you're wondering, when he was resurrected. To deny this is to deny the resurrection. He ate, touched, and was recognized. In fact, this is so important, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 24. This is something we don't want to miss. In Luke 24, we see for ourselves that we will not have spiritual bodies that don't have material, because Jesus still does after the resurrection. In Luke 24, verses 36 through 43, we read these things. Now, as they said these things, the disciples gathering together, discussing about the Lord Jesus, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, they're still like, I don't know about this. Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Jesus' body was still material, even after the resurrection. The spiritual body of 1 Corinthians 15. Spiritual does not mean immaterial or invisible. That's not what it means. The adjective speaks of the character and quality, as in the Bible is a spiritual book. The Bible is still a literal book, isn't it? It will involve a continuity with our present bodies. They're not brand new bodies. Our present bodies will be transformed. The debate all the time is, what age am I going to be in heaven? We don't know for sure. We will have new capabilities, though. Jesus could travel without physical effort. When he returned after the resurrection, remember that? 
We will have new intellectual capacities. But I dare say that with new intellectual capacities, there will probably be an indispensable amount of knowledge we still will have to learn. Christ's miracles demonstrated his deity. And in our resurrected state, both physically and spiritually, it will enable us to enter into the fellowship of the Trinity. There are so many things wrapped in what John is saying here that ought to blow our minds. For we shall see him as he is. This could express the necessary condition for seeing Christ. If that's the case, then it would, would be explanatory. We are transformed before we see him so that we can see him. That's a possibility of what John's talking about there. We need to be transformed so that we can gaze on Christ. In the Bible, in several instances, individuals catch a glimpse of God and they cannot bear it. You read that in, in Exodus 33 with Moses. Show me your glory, right? God doesn't show him his face. Rather, only the back. Moses could not see God's face and live. In the tabernacle, we, to understand it, we must see the tension between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. The purpose of the inner veil was not to keep people out, but to keep the glory of God in. This is why the veil in the temple was rent in two at the resurrection. By rending the veil, God demonstrated that the glory had departed and that God had abandoned Israel. The fire of Yahweh refers to the bursting forth of God's presence. Isaiah and Daniel were both overcome by the glory of God. I don't know if, how many of you have paid attention to this, but as I was looking through this, Daniel himself was actually ill physically because of what he saw. And I think sometimes when God works with his own, and they see him for who he is, it affects them personally, deeply. In the transfiguration, there's a clear tabernacle parallel. The function of Jesus' flesh was the same as the inner veil to conceal his glory. Jesus didn't openly reveal that to everyone. And what do we see in Revelation 1 when John falls at the feet of Jesus? He's in awe and fear. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in the rapture, Christ returns outside of the earth's atmosphere. As soon as the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ are transformed and fit to meet and see Christ. If the transformation was not required, why would that be made a statement? Because it is required. 
We must be transformed before we can be called together. Otherwise, decaying bodies would make their way into the skies. Could you imagine somebody's been dead for a lot longer? There needs to be a transformation. This could express the actual consequence of seeing Christ as well, though. If that is the case that John is saying this in 1 John chapter 3, then it would be a result. Seeing Christ will have a transforming effect on all of us. It could be either a preparatory thing or as a result of, if you will. Does that make sense? We need to be transformed. Our bodies need to be transformed to be in the presence of God. Seeing God. This is the beatific vision because when we have it, we will be beautified. Seeing the Lord Jesus with bodily eyes. I don't know if you realize this, but one of the reasons why Jesus became a man is so that you could behold him one day. Do you know that? You will be able to see him face to face. Because he stands as your representative. We will see God the Father. This will not be a physical act, though, as what we see with the Son. Seeing will be more of a perception or an experience, if you will, of the glory of God. There's an optical and spiritual vision, if you will. So, church, what is our responsibility on this earth knowing that one day we will see Jesus as he is? Our bodies will be transformed. The hope is not just seeing Christ, believer, just so you know. We miss it because the hope is also being like him. Being like him. You get it? It isn't just that I'm going to see Jesus one day, that's great. It's that I get to be like him. I've been adopted as a son. There's a responsibility, believer, for all of us to purify ourselves as he is pure. Not to stand there waiting to see Jesus return by not caring about personal holiness. The degree to which one purifies oneself is the degree to which they will see God. Did you know that? It makes a difference how you and I live this life. Just as God is always just and righteous, he is so in even the way that we live before him and what the results will be in eternity. Not everyone gets the same. There are different degrees of seeing God. The Father did not save us to keep us where we are, but to begin the transformation process here on this earth. In fact, believer, believe it or not, God is transforming us right now. Not just when our bodies are in the casket and one day when we're called. He's working on us today. Why do we not want to conform to the one who loved us and called us his own? Why do we love Jesus 
and yet don't want to be like him. I should say it this way. Why do we say we love Jesus, but we don't want to be like him? Any parent that's raised children knows that they want certain things out of their children if they have standards in their home. The Father wants us to be like Christ. Jesus is the example. You're not to be passive in the purification process in this life, believer. You're not to be passive. This isn't an act where you just get to sit back and hopefully God will work on me. You are to be proactive in this area. Your sanctification plays a role even in eternity to what extent you experience God. If it didn't, I don't think the disciples would have a debate on who's sitting next to Jesus. Experience loss of rewards will be more than a humbling experience for us, believer. It'll be an outright humiliating experience for some of us that don't care for what God has said. It'll be more than just humbling. It'll be humiliation for some of us. So in conclusion, church, I want to ask this question. Are you purifying yourself? Are you purifying yourself? If you're not a child of God, there's nothing that you can do to purify yourself, just to begin with. That purification has to start with the Lord Jesus Christ, who has to save you from your sin. You can't do anything to earn it. This is only for those that have already placed their faith in Jesus. They are to proactively purify themselves as the Spirit works in their life. You're a child of God, the Holy Spirit is only working in you to purify you. The question is, are you being passive or in the process of cooperating with him? God is never going to leave you on your own if he promised that he was never going to leave you. You see, we love those precious promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you realize that that promise also applies in your sanctification process? When you're messing it up, when everything's jacked up in life, it's not going well, God is there. Even when the fellowship's broken, I never left you. You left me. When convicted of sin, and we all do get convicted of sin at times, do you seek to blame others? The circumstances, how hard it is, how tired you are. What are we blaming? If the blame is anywhere but ourselves, we're not seeing it for what it is. You see, some of us, we know that we have a tendency to sit in certain areas because we're too tired. The simple solution to that is a very practical one, get more sleep. And I know sometimes it's more difficult for some of us because of physical ailments. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about for those of us that get very little sleep and we know we have a tendency to blow up or have sins that we commit because we're exhausted and overwhelmed, sometimes the most practical thing you can do is get some more sleep and stop trying to rationalize it and stop trying to excuse it.
Are you trying to live an upright life without godly influences in your life? What a very, very dangerous spot to be in. Christians fall into this trap all the time. Well, I don't need to share anything. I better not say anything to anybody else because if I share anything, it's going to make me look weak. And if I say something, then people are going to judge me. No, that is not the right way to look at it. You should always have people you can go to and turn to and go, hey, listen, I'm struggling right here, brother, sister. I, I need some help. I need prayer. I'm falling. I need to get back up. I've fallen. What's even worse is when someone's fallen, they know they've fallen. They don't want to get up because it's too hard, and they don't reach out for any help. And what's even more heartbreaking is there are those that notice that. They come alongside. They're like, hey, brother, sister, we're trying to help you back up. No, don't help me. I'm fine. God's going, I, I sent you people. I sent people in your life. They're not there to judge you. They're there to help you. Why well, didn't like the way they said it? How would you like Jesus to tell you you're a tool of Satan? How would you like that one? Did you take it as well as Peter did? Well, that's not nice, Jesus. doesn't sound loving. Was he a tool of Satan at that time? Sure he was. Could Jesus have probably worded it a little differently? Could have. Didn't. Who you spend time with will determine whether or not this is an area that you are proactive in the area of purifying yourself. If you're around a believer or a non-believer that does not proactively look to be more purified by what God has done, then you're going to be in trouble. And your walk is going to suffer. You need to proactively seek those that want God to continue working in their life. Have you forgotten that you were saved from sin and what you're actually saved for? You were saved from sin to the praise of the glory of his grace, believer. You weren't saved just so you can think better of yourself. You were saved to make him known, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And one day to be transformed fully into a likeness that, that can enjoy his glory. The more time you spend in the word, the more you will see God cleanse things in your life, believer. Your thoughts about yourself, others, your actions in the past, your thoughts of the future, all of those things God will realign if you make his word a priority. The reason many of us stay away from accountability in the church is because we deceive ourselves into thinking we can do better on our own. When God has given us brothers and sisters around us that are there to help. So church, I just want to, in closing, before we go to the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to take a couple minutes and if this hasn't been something that you've been proactive about, I'm asking you this morning, not out of me saying it, but rather what John's saying here, to proactively purify yourself, to ask God for forgiveness, to ask God to clean you up, and strive not just to participate in the Lord's Supper as a remembrance, 
but as a tool of a reminder that once I get and exit this place, I have that reminder of what Jesus has done on my behalf and that I have to be pure, that I have to live an upright life before God and others. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for 